Okay, Brucham Abam, everyone, to the uh, the first of Bez Hashem will be many shiurim for the uh, new Kenyan Hamasefta Mekorah Chaim Shir. Uh, Bez Hashem is going to be four days a week for now, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday during the Kolo Boker, so that's from 7.10 to 7.45 every single day. So just at the outset, I can tell you basically the format of how things are going to work and uh, what the expectations are, and Bez HaShem, we shall be that we have full retention of all the attendees. I know that uh, generally, uh, when you start a shir, there's a few that fall off because it doesn't work with their schedule, and it's very hard. So I guess my bracha to everyone is that it does work with your schedule. And uh, the best part about this is, you see I'm recording right now, is that this is actually creating a podcast right now. So um, once this is uh, finished, it's going to be uploaded to anywhere where you can get podcasts uh, if you have access to them, uh, whether it's Apple or whether it's Spotify, etc. So uh, it, one th- shouldn't have an excuse to miss a shear. Uh, many people in the group right now already know they have to travel throughout the week, and uh, it's not the greatest demand of your time to be able to maintain the schedule and to keep pace. And even if you have to miss a day, just make up for it later that afternoon and it should keep you on pace. Uh, what's going to happen is, obviously today we're not going to start with Hazar because there's nothing to Hazar yet. Uh, but the, the daily format is going to be we start the day with Hazar the previous day. Um, then we're going to have a new material for, I would say, 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes. And at the end, uh, what should happen ideally is that you break up into Chavrusas to do Hazar, um, or at least you do it on your own. Um, and that's the daily cycle, the end of the week. Then you do a weekly um, chazara of what you did that previous week, which shouldn't be that much ground. Let's say it's about a blot, uh, maybe even a little less than a blot, a little more than a blot. Uh, it's very reasonable. Then f- every two, three, or four blot, you do another chazara, as you see on the bookmarks that were made over here. Chazara, chazara, chazara. It sounds too simple, uh, but one cannot... Uh, overemphasize the need for maintaining the chazara of what we're going to be doing. The primary success of this program is not necessarily the amount of ground that you cover, is that everything you do cover you know very well. And that's why we're going to go um, at a nice pace throughout. Uh, I'm sure there's various levels of people that are here today, uh, but it should be uh, about as clear as possible to understand exactly what's being said. Feel free to take a pencil to punctuate the Gemaras yourself, because you'll be using your own Gemaras uh, to do the Chazaras, unless you have another Gemara at home you'd like to use, but it's much easier, obviously, to use the one that you punctuated, that you wrote in the translations that you wrote in, and uh, the more Chazar that you do, the better you know it, the more steeper you feel, the more your skills are going to build, and obviously there's going to be an exponential uh, growth and amount of satisfaction you're going to feel from what we're doing. So again, like I said before, we should be all objecting to for what we're doing, uh, but let's get going. So uh, the Kenyan Masefta organization um, recommends signing the second parak of Sukkah, uh, they have wild success around the country, and therefore I had a munas chachamim, and I said, if that's what they want, that's what we're going to do. So if you're wondering why we're starting the second parak of sukkah, that's the reason why. And also, just it's to make a statement that it's not necessarily just to finish the masech, but it's to understand what we're learning and to get a satisfaction for what we're learning. And uh, that's why we're going to start over here. It's a parak that's dedicated to lachas of yeshiva b'sukkah. The first parak talked about the lachas of how to make a sukkah properly, uh, the walls and the schach, etc. And now we're going to get into the lachas of the mitzvah of living in a sukkah on the and uh, the first Mishnah starts off as follows: and So let's say someone goes into a sukkah and they sleep underneath the bed. That could be for various reasons. It could be because it's raining outside. It could be it's more comfortable there. He feels more safe underneath it. The bottom line we're going to discuss right now: the Allah is if someone sleeps underneath the bed inside a sukkah, was he yotze the mitzvah of yeshiva basukkah or not? So Someone who sleeps underneath the bed in a sukkah. Lo the Tanakama Paskins, the first opinion Paskins, he was not yotze his mitzvah of yeshiva basukkah. Period. Amr of Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says the following. 
Noagin Hayinu, we used to have a minag, Shayinu Yeshenim Tachasamita, that we would sleep underneath a bed, in front of the elders. And the elders here is not just elderly people, but clearly reference to the Paiskim, the Gedolim, the Sadikim of that generation. We would sleep underneath the bed in front of them. And they didn't say a word to us. So basically, in a backhanded fashion, Rehuda is saying, I argue in the Tanakhama. The Tanakhama said that if you sleep underneath the bed, you're not Yosei. Rehuda says, not only do I argue, but I have evidence that the Gedolim agree with me, is the fact that we used to do that in front of the Zikainim, and they never said a word. I guess you'd imagine this is probably the years in Yeshiva, where, you know, why, why are the elders going into their sukkah? You know, they, they, had, uh, they went off to Yeshiva, they had a Yeshiva sukkah, they're all sleeping underneath beds inside the sukkah. Apparently, this is a common practice, and the elders said nothing at all. And therefore, clearly, it's not a problem at all. Um, Rav Shimon. Rav Shimon comes back and says a, uh, a counter, Misa. Misa b'tavi avdei sho Rebbe Gamliel. There's a story of Tavi. Tavi, uh, some call him Tevi, but Tavi, who's the slave of Rebbe Gamliel, apparently who was a shahia yashan tachas hamita, who would sleep underneath a bed. So a little bit of background about this is that Tavi, you're going to see him throughout Shas as being someone who's quite knowledgeable in Torah. I'm assuming he picked it up not because he had a Seder, but, uh, you know, Gadol Shimusha Yosemilimudo, when you spend time around Gedolim and Sadikim, you pick up a little bit of Halacha along the way. And Tavi knew his stuff. Tavi knew his stuff, but he was an Eved. An Eved who's owned by a Jew, what's his status halachically? He's obligated in mitzvahs, the same amount of mitzvahs that women are obligated in. Women are obligated in mitzvahs that are not mitzvahs as man grama, which is about, I think, seven or eight mitzvahs in the Torah. Otherwise, 600 plus they are obligated in. An Eved uh, Kanani, that's owned by a Jew, he's obligated in all mitzvahs that are not mitzvahs man grama. But sukkah is an example of a mitzvah where he's not obligated in. He can voluntarily do it if he wants to, the same way a woman could do it, but he's not obligated. Now, here's a story about Tavi and how the way he conducted himself inside the sukkah. So what's the story? The story goes like this. Uh, there is a story of He would sleep underneath the bed inside a sukkah. Who was the owner of Tavi, Commented to the elders, Reisim Tavi Avdi, have you seen my slave Tavi? Shahu Talmud Chacham, he's clearly knowledgeable in Torah. The Yodayan, he knows, Sha'avadim Peturmin Asukah, he knows that slaves are pata from Sukkah. So, what's the indication of this story over here? Clearly, Rimgam Leo holds that you're not, you cannot sleep underneath the bed inside a sukkah. It's only because he was a slave and he was potter. That's why he's allowed to do it. But otherwise, you cannot do such a thing. Lefikach, what do we learn from this? Yashan hu And that's why he's sleeping underneath the bed, because he knows that he doesn't have to sleep inside a sukkah. And by way of this, by way of this, we learned through this story, that someone sleeps underneath the bed did not fulfill his obligation. So, just to summarize what happened in this Mishnah, very straightforward, Tanakhama starts out with an actual statement. Everything else came through stories. The Tanakhama starts out with a statement that if you sleep underneath a bed inside a sukkah, you're not Yotze. And the simple understanding is you have to sleep inside a sukkah and not underneath a different type of ohel, not a type of, underneath a different type of bed or covering. Along comes a Yehuda and tells a story indicating that you can sleep underneath a bed inside a sukkah. We will certainly learn inside the Gemara the understanding of how a Yehuda could say it's okay. It seems to be counterintuitive to say that you can sleep underneath a bed inside a sukkah, you're not inside the sukkah. Okay, and we'll see different reasons why, in fact, you could hold that even though you're underneath the bed, you are Yotze. This is a share we actually gave this past year on Sukkot in terms of halachas of holding an umbrella over your head during the rain, uh, going underneath the table during the rain, all these types of things. How could that possibly be okay? And we'll learn different reasons for that, but that's clearly the sh- opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. And then finally, we have another counter story from Rabbi Leo that seems to indicate the opposite, that you cannot be Yotze if you're sleeping underneath the bed. And that's the very reason why his slave was willing to sleep underneath the bed inside the Sukkah, because his slave didn't have to be Yotze in the midst of the Sukkah, but indicating that other other people who are fully obligated in the midst
mitzvah sukkah, they would not be able to sleep underneath the bed. We're clear from this Mishnah now? Okay, fine. So now, obviously, the Gemara is going to go into an analysis of this entire sugya of uh, being inside oalim, being inside tents, inside the sukkah, if he could be yotzeh, the mitzvah of yeshiva b'sukkah. Zok the Gemara. V'ha leka asara. So the Gemara jumps to an a assumption, and it's really actually asking, how could it be you're not yotze by sleeping underneath the bed? Because the assumption is, is that if it's not a significant structure, that it cannot ruin the concept that you're sleeping actually inside the sukkah itself. And we cannot blur, sometimes in different areas of halacha, there's different rules of what counts as an oil or not. For example, uh, if you go ahead and you have the halacha as a Shabbos, and you're building a tent, it doesn't matter how tall the tent is, well, as long as it's a tefach, but it doesn't have to be very, very tall to be over the iser making an oil on Shabbos. But over here, the assumption of the Gemara is that any structure that's less than 10 tefachim, that's insignificant. And therefore, if it's insignificant, then go ahead and sleep underneath it. It should not ruin the fact that you're sleeping inside a sukkah. So therefore, the Gemara says, I'm assuming we're dealing with a bed here that is not ten tefachim off the ground. Ten tefachim off the ground is a little bit higher than this. The average bed, unless you're sleeping on the top bunk of a bed, but again, that's assuming there's no bottom bunk underneath it. But the point being is, is that the average bed is not ten tefachim off the ground. It's not ten tefachim off the ground. And if you sleep underneath it, what's the problem with sleeping underneath it? So ask the Gemara, but there isn't ten. There isn't ten tefachim underneath the bed to make it that it's a problem to sleep underneath it. But like asar, there isn't ten. So how do we answer this? Tirgum Shmuel b'mita asar. So as always, uh, an easy way to answer the question is is that we're dealing with that case. We're dealing with a case that there in fact is ten. So Tirgum Shmuel Shmuel uh, translates it. He explains the Mishnah b'mita asar that we are dealing with a bed that in fact is ten tefachim off the ground, and that is going to make our Mishnah make sense that we have this machlokas back and forth. Can you sleep under the bed or not? But seemingly, clearly, Mashmah, if it would be less than ten, there would be no problem at all to sleep underneath the sukkah. Okay, Tanan Hasam, we stay in a Mishnah there. And now we're going to go a little bit off the beaten path now to discuss these halachas of making structure, what counts as a structure, what doesn't count as a structure, al halacha, and we will round, uh, uh, circle back on daf beiz of chaf alef, of amma beiz of chaf alef, to talk about another relevant halacha to our Mishnah. So let's just go on this journey now, and we'll get this as clear as possible. Tanahasam, we say in the Mishnah there, this is a Mishnah Maseches Ohalos, uh, as follows. Echad chor, shecharu main, whether it's a chor, chor is a hole, Shecharu Mayim, that was, uh, so to speak, wedged out by water. But over time, the water made a natural indentation in a rock, and they made a hole inside that rock. O Shratzim, or you have animals, or creatures, uh, that went ahead and made a hole in the ground, or in some sort of structure. O Shachlosu Malachas, or you have certain minerals. Malachas is like the showish of salt. There's Melach. So Achlu Malachas, you have salt and other minerals that wore away at something and created a hole. Midvach Avanim is uh, sort of like a natural pile of stones. And obviously, if stones are not perfectly fit together, you're going to have gaps in between the stones. You're going to have holes in between it that create an opening. And so too, a stack of beams. That again, all of them have holes inside of it that things can be placed inside. All these things, again, the list is a chorshech or a mayim, the whole that is made by water, or made by shratzim, or is made by minerals, or is a pile of stones that naturally just has gaps in between it, or it's a stack of uh, logs um, or beams, all these things that have a gap inside of it, ma'ahil al-hatuma. They all count as ohels over tuma, over things that are impure. So again, just to pause for a second, what are we talking about over here? We're talking about over here as follows. 
uh, in the halachas of Tumah, particularly let's say, let's say Tumas Hames, um, if there's a dead body, Rahman al in the room, then the Tumah itself um, carries to the other areas um, inside. So we need to know what counts as an ohel so as we have to block the Tumah. If there is no ohel, if there's no structure on top of the Tumah, then what happens to the Tumah is it goes straight up to Shemaim. It doesn't spread at all in any other direction. It goes straight up to Shemaim. So if you have, let's say, for example, in a field, or let's say you have a cemetery. Obviously, cemeteries don't have roofs on top of them. So each kever, the tumah just goes straight up to Shemayim. Uh, that's the reason why you hear these stories every once in a while about Kohanim having to avoid going on certain flights because the planes travel over basic Faras. Because, again, literally goes straight up to the heavens. And there's no limit. It's not 20 amas, not 30 amas. It's straight up. Um, just like uh, you have one of those um, you know, spotlights that you have by the special shows that literally shoot up straight to the heavens. Just imagine the tumah going straight up. Once there's an ohel on top of it, once there's a covering on top of it, then what happens is, is that, again, this is a very loose muscle, but imagine like smoke, is that if there's a roof on top of it, then it will go up, but then it will spread to the side because it can't go beyond the ohel. So therefore, in the halakhas of tumah, you need to know what counts as an ohel, what doesn't count as an ohel, because you need to know, is the tumah going to shoot straight up, or is the tumah going to go off to the side? Okay, that's an ohel on mace. And therefore, if you have someone who's standing five feet away from a mace, if they're standing in the field, then they're not going to become tamay at all. If they're standing in a building, then they will become tamay from the presence of a mace being inside the building. That's just a very simple summary of the halakhas of how tumah travels. Uh, one other halakha which is important to know is that if it's too small, let's say there is a covering, there is a roof, but it's a very, very small covering. It's less than a tefach, so it's a very small area right on top of it. That's too small. It's called tumah ratsutsa. But the point being is, is that it's not a big enough structure to go ahead and block the Tumah that it would in fact go straight up. It would not block it, it would not spread it to the side and it still will go straight up. So if you have someone standing right on top of a ceiling that has a mace underneath it but there's less than a tefach gap between the mace and the ceiling then that person will become Tameh who's standing right on top of it even though he's standing on top of a roof. But the person who happens to be lying underneath that same roof underneath it will not become Tameh. So concrete slab? Like how, it doesn't make a difference what the material is. The point is, is right, that... If it's a fixed thick enough slab, then that would be... It. No, it has to be the gap. We, we care about the, the airspace. It's so, the so airspace... Even, so if the slab, slab is six feet above... Even though it's six feet above, it's the, the airspace space. between the mace and the roof. Gotcha. That's just simply how the halacha works. And therefore, again, we're going to end up bringing this back to halacha sukkah, but we need to define what an ohel is. So we have this long list of things that there's a natural ohel that was made by these stones or by the m- minerals, etc. And all of these, the Gemara says, the Mishnah says over there in Oolos, um count as an OL for Tumah. Three lines at the bottom. Ma'ahil al Tumah. They count as an OL over Tumah. Rabbi Huda Oimer, Rabbi Huda argues and says, Kol Oyel she'eno asui bidei adam. Any tent, any covering that is not made by humans, eno OL, is not considered to be an OL. It's a very strong statement. So again, it was very clear from all these, even the piles that we had of beams, they were not made by man. They were just, so to speak, thrown together. It wasn't made to be a structure. But ultimately, since it wasn't made by a human being, or Behuda argues and says they do not count as an ohel. So therefore, even though to the naked eye, it looks like any regular ohel. You have a gap over there with the mason side of it, it should carry the tumah. If it's not made by a human, or Behuda argues, it's not going to count as an ohel. And we're going to analyze that now for the next amud. But that's the machlokas we have over here. The Tanakama holds that all it matters to us is what is it? Is it an opening? If it's an opening, it counts as an oil. Rebuda argues and says, if it's not made by humans, it's not going to count as an oil. Says the Gemara as follows. My time in Rebuda, what is the rationale for Rebuda that he makes such a statement? You can't make that up on your own, right? It seems to be an oil. It looks like an oil. It smells like an oil. Why is it not an oil? So he tells you, I'll tell you how I know it. Yalev, ohel, ohel mi mishka. He does a gzeir shava. 
Agzeir Shava is a concept, one of the Yigam Amidos that we have right before the first Kaddish every single morning. Agzeir Shava is when you have two words that are the same word in two different Pesukim in the Torah, you can learn out a lesson from one to the other. Uh, it's important to note, and I always mention this every time, you cannot make these up on your own. If you go ahead and you open up a Chumash, like, oh wow, look at this Pesuk over here, look at this Pesuk over there, let's learn something out to each other. Unless we have a Mesorah that those two words are linked to each other, you cannot do it. But once they are linked to each other, there's lessons that have to be learned one from the other. So along comes Yehuda says, I have a Messiah that there's a connection between the word Ohel by the Halachs of Tumah and the word Ohel by the Mishkan, the Mishkan itself. As it says, Ksiv Hacha, it's written here, Zois HaTayra Adam Ki Yamas This is the Tayra, which means these are the Halachas of an Adam Ki Yamas of a man that dies inside a tent. Viksiv Hasam is written there by the Mishkan, Vayifrois Esa Ohel Ala Mishkan. They spread the Ohel on the Mishkan. Okay, so now that we've linked them, what do we learn from it? Malahalon bide Adam, just like over there, bide Adam is made by man. The Mishkan didn't go up on its own, it was made by men. Afkan bide Adam, so too over here, it's only considered to be an OL if it's made by man. There you go. Straight out Xer Shava. OL, OL for Mishkan, just like the Mishkan is made by man. Rabbi Huda says we can learn to over here that it's only considered to be an OL for the Lachas of Tumah if it's made by a human. If it's not made by a human, it will not have the status, it will not have the din of being an OL. So how do we say back to this? Rabbanon, and the Rabbanon have to answer back to this. If there is in fact Xer Shava, then how do Rabbanon argue and say that it counts as an OL even though it wasn't made by man? What the Tanakama? Yeah, Rabbanan's Tanakama, exactly. Rabbanan, the rabbis, Tanakama, who said that it was considered to be an Ohel, how did they get out of this? Rabbanan, Ohel, Ohel, Riva. He says just the opposite. In fact, it says Ohel twice is coming to do a Ribui. The word Ribui means to include something extra to say that even though it wasn't made by man, um, it's going to count as the din of an Ohel. Okay, so that's what we have so far. Um, a, the Gemara just asked a very simple question of why is it a problem, according to the Tanakhama, a Mishnah sleep underneath the bed if it's not Ten Tvachim, and we answer that it is Ten Tvachim. And then we're going off to this new discussion now of do things count as an oil if they're not made by humans or not? We have the Tanakhama that says that it doesn't make a difference who made it, as long as it is an oil, it counts as a lachas of an oil to allow the Tumah to travel and to be stuck underneath the roof and to be metame other things, as opposed to Behudu who argues and says, no, if it's not made by humans, not going to be. We asked the question of what's the source for Rabbi Yehuda. So does that mean if it's not ten tefachim, then everybody would agree that it's fine? It sounds like right now that if it's less than ten tefachim, there's nothing to talk about. Everyone agrees it's fine. Right. Yeah. It's once more than ten, now we get into the machlokas of our Mishnah, which again is clearly proving to us it's not just a something over your head that's a problem. It's something halachically that counts right. as a structure that's going to be a problem. And less than ten tefachim, they say, is too insignificant to count as anything, therefore you don't have to worry about it. So yeah, absolutely is what it's saying. Um, okay. So, we're we doing time now. Seven thirty-four. Um, the Tanakhama doesn't hold by Gzeir Shabbat, or he uses it for something. So over here, so there's, there's there's always different things. So um, look over here at the um, at the at the first Rashi on Chafal from Adalif. Oel Oel Riva. Ohalim Tuva Ksivi Beparshas Para. It says the word Oel many times in the Parsha of the Paraduma. Lerabos af may love to include even was made on its own. So he's saying that even though yes, you found the singular word by the parsha of Tumah and the singular word by the parsha of the Mishkan, and therefore you would say link them together to learn out the lesson that you to learn from it that if it's made on its own, it does not count as an ol. But you can't ignore the fact there's so many times it says the word ol in the parsha of Tumah. Why does it say it so many times? If not to tell us that even though you would think to do the Gzeirah to tell us not. 
I'm telling you that the extra ones are telling us that yes, even if it was made on its own, it counts as an OL. So again, this particular sometimes they don't have the Xer Shava, sometimes they have a, a secondary reason why they don't listen to the Xer Shava. So here it seems to be I hear what you have, but Lamaisa, there's an override over here. Second all takes you back to takes you back to, to say that even if it's made on its own. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so believe it or not, we're going to stop already with today's year. Um, and uh, obviously, 